Good evening. Biden targets the filibuster, a debate in Wyoming, a Trump loyalist on Jews in the Supreme Court, and a plan for Penn Station. What's really behind the plan? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, July 1st, 2022. One day after saying he supports changing the filibuster rules, President Biden acknowledged Democrats don't have the votes to change Senate rules. Going to have to act to codify the row into federal law. As I said yesterday, the filibuster should not stand in the way of us being able to do that. But right now, we don't have the votes in the Senate to change the filibuster on, on at, the, at the moment. That means we need two more votes now, not now, when we vote, probably after November. Uh, more senators and House majority uh, and the House majority elected in November to get this bill to my desk. So the choice is clear. We either elect federal senators and representatives who will codify Roe, or Republicans who will elect the House and Senate who will try to ban abortions nationwide. And that's the president speaking today. Meanwhile, abortion providers and patients were struggling Friday today to navigate evolving legal landscapes around abortion laws and access across the country since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last week. In Florida, a law banning abortion after 15 weeks went into effect on Friday, the day after a judge called it a violation of the state constitution and said he would sign an order temporarily blocking the law next week. The ban would have broader implications in the South, where the state has wider access to the procedures than its neighbors. Abortion rights have been lost and regained in the span of a few days in Kentucky. A so-called trigger law imposing a near-total ban on the procedure took effect last week, but a judge blocked the law today or yesterday, meaning the state's only two abortion providers can resume seeing patients for now. In Texas, abortions up to six weeks resumed at some clinics after a Houston judge said patients still had the right, at least until a new ban on virtually all abortions takes effect in the coming weeks. But the state has asked the Texas Supreme Court to block that order and allow prosecutors to enforce a ban on abortion now, adding to the uncertainty. Meanwhile, in Wyoming, GOP Representative Liz Cheney is in the fight of her political life. Down in the polls and facing losing her seats in Congress over her opposition to Donald Trump and membership of the House January 6th committee, Liz Cheney came out swinging. Her opponent has a significant lead in the August primary battle. The truth matters, Cheney responded to Harriet Hageman, the candidate endorsed by Trump. Trump was an excellent president for the United States of America and especially for the state of Wyoming. We are now embracing a cult of personality and I won't, uh, I won't be part of that and, and I will always stand for my oath and stand for the truth. The tragedy is that there are politicians in this country beginning with Donald Trump, who have lied to the American people. People have been betrayed. He consistently has said that the election was stolen when it wasn't. I'd be interested to know whether or not my opponent, Ms. Hageman, is willing to say here tonight that the election was not stolen. She knows it wasn't stolen. We have to either decide that we are going to abide by the rulings of the courts. President Trump and his associates brought 61 lawsuits, state and federal court. In a number of those lawsuits, the evidence was heard. They were not simply dismissed based on standing. The president lost every one. On December 14th, when the Electoral College meets and votes, that is the end. Now, if Mrs. Hageman is standing up here claiming that the election was stolen or that there was fraud that was sufficient to overturn the election, she ought to say it. Uh, Otherwise, she needs to stop making claims that are not true, and she ought to tell the people of Wyoming the truth. Liz Cheney 
responding to Harriet Hageman, who uh, basically took the position that Wyoming loves Trump. I have been traveling the state, as I said, over 30,000 miles now. And one of the words that I hear over and over and over again is accountability. The people of Wyoming do not believe that they're being represented in Congress right now because our representative doesn't come to Wyoming. She doesn't come here to talk to us, to explain her vote, to, de to, to defend the decisions that she's making. She focuses an awful lot of time on the January 6th committee, but she's not addressing the issues that are important to Wyoming. I have fought back and I've beat the EPA, the USDA, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Forest Service. I actually am the one person who has done something to get more access to federal lands in the state of Wyoming. I know how these agencies work. I have the experience to go back there and actually fight against them. And that's Harriet Hageman. Trump's former campaign manager, Bill Stepien, who at a January 6th hearing claimed to have been part of Team Normal as Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election, signed on to work for Hageman in Wyoming. Cheney, Hageman and three other candidates will contest the primary on August 16th. Hageman leads by about 30 points in polls. Another candidate, Robin Belinsky, also a Trumper, had decidedly more trouble in the debate. And we do have the right to our, our First Amendment right to to have been at the Capitol, to have been able to uh, ex express our um, our disdain of what happened on that day. Anyway, the fact of the matter is we have a system of government that is is uh, is divided where we cannot have uh, actual. Um, um, oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> See, um, anyway, uh, where we don't get justice for the people who actually uh, are innocent in some of these situations. Well, one of the candidates, Robin Belinsky Cheney, is a strict conservative and the daughter of the former congressman, defense secretary and vice president, Dick Cheney. She's been seeking to convince Democrats to switch registration and back her. And the growing racist undertone to the pro-Trump bandwagon is rising to the surface. Openly fascist talk show host Nick Fuentes claimed last week that Jews stood in the way of overturning Roe v. Wade, adding Jews can't make the laws. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Jewish woman, didn't die last year so that Amy Coney Barrett, a Catholic woman, could be appointed to the bench, we would still have Roe versus Wade. Now you tell me that this is a Judeo-Christian country. Now you tell me that this is a Judeo-Christian movement. You tell me that it doesn't matter that you have a lot of these Jewish people in government. Tell me that it doesn't matter after a decision like this. But the fact of the matter is, the liberal wing in the court is Jewish. And that was Nick Fuentes, a barn burner of the worst order. Fuentes founded the America First Political Action Committee and the far-right Groiper Army. He made the comments on his website's live stream on Friday. And a new report published yesterday by the Arab American Action Network, or AAAN, and the Policing in Chicago Research Group at the University of Illinois, Chicago, for the first time, says their research shows strong evidence of federal government program encouraging reporting suspicious behavior. See something, say something. We see it everywhere here in New York as well. That kind of suspicious behavior, reporting it, is disproportionately targeting and racially profiling Arab and Muslim Americans for seemingly everyday activities. Mohammed Sankatar is chief organizer for the group. This activity reporting program has been proven now by the AAAN to be a program that specifically is used to target Arabs and Muslims 
specifically in our area, in the Chicagoland area, but also more broadly, we believe, uh, nationally. The problem with these kinds of, like, deputizing everyone to be a vigilante of suspicious activity is that we're falling into two things. One is that people's own individual biases come into play. But more importantly is that there's actually a built-in structural bias, structural racism in these institutions, law enforcement and others. These reports that are being used to kind of pump out the criminalization of, of already marginalized and oppressed communities. Tell us about your report. We published a report today that's really digging into suspicious activity reports. Suspicious activity reports are being used as a tool of racialized surveillance. What we found is that 70% of these reports are being filed against people of color. Over half of these reports are being filed against people who are identified as Arab, Middle Eastern, Muslim, or olive-skinned. And so the Arab population of Illinois makes up less than 2%, 50% of these reports being filed against 1.5% of the state population. Can you give us some examples? People being criminalized for regular innocuous activities, such as taking photographs at the state capitol, taking photographs at the Art Institute in Chicago, which if you've ever been to Chicago is a beautiful place and there's thousands of people that take photos there. And in those reports, these people are specifically identified as in the case of the state capitol, as a black woman who is wearing what they believe to be Muslim clothing, hijab and, and other things, right? And that's why her photography became suspicious. One of the worst examples for me that came out of these reports, one of the worst reports, is a young Syrian student in a local high school who is really, you know, having a very difficult time dealing with the reality of the civil war in Syria and, and goes and talks to his counselor, confides in his counselor about how distraught and upset he is um, that he's not going to be able to see his grandparents because of the civil war. And the counselor reports him to the police and the Illinois State Police end up calling to investigate his family, asking them what the relationship to ISIS is. And this is because a young student who was facing a crisis confided in an adult that they should have been able to confide in and look how it snowballed into such a terrible, terrible thing. There is an example of a report in which a family, a Middle Eastern family calls a plumber to come fix something in their basement. And when he's downstairs, he sees a map that he says he believes has Arabic writing on it and has little flags on it, which could be one million billion different things. He reports this to the police the police file a suspicious activity report about it. All of these reports are being forwarded to the FBI and then shared with any other agency that wants access to them. Is the government knowingly using people's racism? All of these programs serve a dual purpose. One is, of course, to have the government be able to say we're tackling terrorism, we're working against the threat of terror, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But m more importantly is... United States government needs to continuously justify their wars abroad in the Middle East and in South Asia and in the African continent. They need to create popular reasoning for that. And one of the ways to do it is to create this idea of there is an imminent threat here at home. And if we don't fight them over there, we're going to have to fight them over here. What's the plan? What do we do? We need to take direct action with our community to force these law enforcement agencies to end the use of SARS. And we're going to do that through not only mass education, but we're going to do it through mass mobilization and mass direct action against law enforcement agencies, municipal, state, local and federal across Illinois.
And what is SARS? Do you see something, say something, grew out of the national suspicious activity reporting? It's not just a slogan. It actually is the, the front, the name of a whole program across the country that's being used widely. A marketing tool that's being used as a front for this national program. And that is Mohammed Sakhtar. He is the chief organizer for the group, the Arab American Action Network, which is based in Chicago. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Closer to home, Governor Kathy Hochul has issued a proclamation adding abortion rights protection to the agenda of the state's legislature of the state legislature's extraordinary session. The governor said the goal is to pass a resolution to solidify the right to abortion access in the New York state constitution. We had abortion legal in our state since 1970. So this is deeply personal to all of us as the keepers of the flame. You know, we we support this right. We cherish this right. And we feel for our sisters across this country who will no longer have access to control over their own bodies. Here in New York, we took action already. We've given $35 million to our existing providers so they can beef up and prepare for the influx of women coming from other states. We also, I signed a package of laws just last week, made sure they have immunity for our abortion providers in this state so they're not subjected to lawsuits from states where they have uh, personal rights of action to go after people who secure an abortion or the provider. So, so we've done what we can here to become a safe harbor for women across this country. But to us personally, this is devastating. This is a blow to all women, but my view is you stand up and you fight back. Governor Hochul's state lawmakers have already convened in Albany to discuss further gun control measures following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn a century-old New York concealed carry law, which required those applying for a concealed carry permit to prove they had a special need for one. Meanwhile... Advocates say the Supreme Court decision to limit how the Environmental Protection Agency regulates carbon dioxide emissions from power plants could make an already grave situation worse for those affected most by climate change and air pollution. Environmental and climate justice advocates from across the United States are decrying the court's 6-3 ruling, saying it will be felt most by communities of color and poor communities which are located near power plants at higher percentages than the national average. They're calling on the EPA to find alternate ways to limit carbon dioxide emissions and other forms of air pollution and for Congress to grant the agency the authority to do so. Laura Shindell is chief organizer for the group Food and Water Watch. She says it's up to states like New York to step up and fill the gap in protection from climate change eviscerated by the Supreme Court. But she says New York's governor is yet to act on the laws that have already been sent to her desk. New York sets the bar for what climate action in the country can look like. So if New York isn't taking action, there's less action overall in the country. And in the world, New York is symbolically a really important state. And what we do here matters. And um, all the more reason to uh, offset the uh, inaction from red states to have states like New York lead the way in showing that the transition to renewable energy is possible and we can get it done and have good green jobs and resilient energy and electricity along the way. So New York should be paving the way for other states. They're acting. They're not enacting. They're acting. The way we react is by doing everything that we can at the local and state level here in New York. So we need Governor Hochul first to sign the crypto moratorium bill that's been collecting dust on her desk um, that would implement a two-year moratorium 
on building fossil fuel power plants for the purposes of Bitcoin mining. And she also needs to call for a special legislative session on climate this summer so that we can pass the climate policies that were widely popular in the Assembly and Senate this past legislative session, but that leadership never called to a vote. So she should call for a special session so we can get these critical climate policies passed and do everything in New York State's power to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and meet our mandated climate goals. And that's what we can do is focus on the local and state level. How about Zeldin? This guy Zeldin could win. New Yorkers care about the environment. They care about women's rights. They care about gun safety protections. We have a super majority of Democrats in the legislature. I just don't see Lee Zeldin governor in our future, but time will tell. That is not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the Democrats that we do have in power not acting and not using the full force of their authority to pass these common sense bills because they've just been dragging their feet on them. New Yorkers are fed up. Affordable, clean energy. It's popular. It will create jobs. The Build Public Renewables Act allows the state to start building solar and wind energy, which, again, is widely popular. We need to pass the All-Electric Building Act as well, which would require that all new buildings that are constructed in New York State be done without fracked gas and, and be all electric without fossil fuel hookups. Why do you think Hochul has not signed it so far? What we do see is that both Governor Hochul and Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado are taking a lot of money from the crypto industry. Money talks. We'd love if policy decisions were made off of the priority of public health and the people, but we are seeing a lot of money from the crypto industry get poured into Governor Hochul's campaign and into Delgado's campaign. Unfortunately, that means we need to pressure her to sign that bill and underscore the fact that voters are more powerful and important than money. Laura Schindel is with the group Food and Water Watch. And finally, business owners around Penn Station are racked with worry over Governor Kathy Hochul's plan to seize and raise properties in the area in order to make way for 10 new skyscrapers. The state's Empire State Development Corporation is expected to vote in the coming weeks to approve the plan that officials concede will displace 473 businesses and 128 households. The scheme, backed by Mayor Eric Adams, would use tax revenues from the new office towers to fund aesthetic renovations at Penn Station, the nation's largest transit hub. An organizer for the Westside Coalition and director of Tenant.net is John Fisher. He says Penn Station's plan, the Penn Station plan, is not really a plan, but a reaction to economic problems in New York. Modernization is great. In fact, we don't oppose fixing up Penn Station. There are problems with it. And that means cleaning up the interior, the floors where all the pedestrians go and all of that. We'd like to see that fixed up as well. We'd like to see the tunnels fixed. They've been sitting on this for over 10 years with this fantasy that they need to build two additional tunnels, which would bring in another 300,000 people per day. There's a difference between making things nice, fixing it up, and making it workable, and doubling the capacity. And that's what we actually oppose. Half the city is not coming back to work, and they've changed the whole economics where people are working from home, and they don't like coming to work. Why come to work when there's shootings on the subways, and there's no really belief that that's 
going to change any. That's what's happening now. Five years, things may change. The one thing after 9-11 was people thought that New York was done. It was over with. People were going to move out. It was the end of history. Well, given a few years, things change. And that could very well happen here. The one thing about this whole Penn Station mess is that it's a moving target. It changes from day to day. The estimated cost and the estimated part of the projects that they want to put into this thing, that changes. There's multiple parts. There's about 15 different parts to this whole thing, and they all change from day to day. The Hochul version is very similar to the Cuomo version, but it has some additional affordable housing. But that's just like, you know, something they throw at you and say, okay, well, be good people. You could shut up and be quiet. Things change over time. The office market may or may not change, but the thing is, we don't know what's going to happen. Right now, though, we don't need it. So if they're operating on what they need now, it's not necessary. They don't know either. They could make all these buildings, and they might not necessarily attract people. Well, that's what's happening now with the hotels. They've built all these hotels in the last decade or so, and half of them are empty, so now they want to convert them to housing. That's not easily done. There's a lot of things that they would have to do, converting the rooms with plumbing and electricity and walls and all sorts of different things. It's a, it's a massive project. Would it help? Maybe. I don't know. Things change. What's wrong with the way the city of New York goes about planning that they uh, make oh, mistakes over and got over? about got about five hours. <laughs> Planning in New York City is basically controlled by the agenda of the real estate industry. That's what it's really all about. It has nothing to do with an act, actual planning that you might find elsewhere, something that may look at five years, ten years down the line, and saying, well, this part of the city should be for this, or, and that part of the city should be for that, and so on. You know, it, Right now, it's basically exceptions to the zoning text. Some developer comes along and says, well, we want to put up a huge tower here. And so they have hearings that you go through uh, the Uniform Land Use Review Procedure, commonly known as EULRP. Things are handed over to the developers simply because the politicians are either neoliberal or, or sold out. And that's what happens nine out of ten times. John Fisher is an organizer for Westside Coalition and director of Tenant.net. Hochul inherited the effort from ex-Governor Andrew Cuomo. In November, she said the state had reduced the size of the towers by 7%, but didn't walk back Cuomo's plan to sidestep the city's zoning process to seize and destroy privately owned buildings. And that's some of the news for Friday, July 1st, 2022. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening and have a great Independence Day weekend.